Hello everybody, Julian Charles here of themindrenewed.com, podcasting to you as usual from the depths of the Lancashire countryside here in the UK. Today is the 18th of March 2015 and I am delighted and privileged to welcome to the programme Dr. Catherine Albrecht, who is an internationally respected privacy researcher, consumer advocate, best-selling author and U.S. nationally syndicated radio host, and also senior executive with the private search engine StartPage and Xquick, which, if you don't use those, I do highly recommend them. I've been using Xquick now for several years as my web browser homepage instead of the uh, the monster, Google. Um, Dr. Albrecht is also on the team developing a new privacy-protecting email program called StartMail. She holds a doctorate in human development and consumer education from Harvard University and has been involved for many years in testifying before various U.S. legislative bodies. Catherine, it's great pleasure of mine to welcome you to The Mind Renewed. I've heard you many times over the years on the, uh, the late, great Dr. Stanley Monteith's Radio Liberty show, so it's wonderful to be speaking with you here today. It's terrific to be on with you, Julian. What a pleasure to be on your program, and, and what a pleasure to be speaking to. I know it's people all over the world, but particularly um, the people in Great Britain who I really um, have, have the deepest respect and admiration for. Well, I really am so glad that you agreed to speak with us. Um, And I particularly wanted to invite you to join us around this time because over the last few weeks, I've received a number of emails expressing concern about what's going on in Sweden, where it was reported in late January that there's this new office building in Stockholm and it's offering workers the opportunity to have an RFID chip, microchip implanted under their skin, their hands. And this is, of course, of course, this is builders, you know, uh, for convenience, of course. Um, so that they can access buildings and rooms and computers and all that kind of thing, you know, without a key or passcode. And certainly in the BBC report on this, the representative of that office said they were doing this in anticipation of governments and corporations trying to entice the general population to receive RFID implants. And uh, clearly this is of concern from the point of view of privacy and from the point of view of the rise of technocratic control over all of us, very much related to the prophetic warnings in the Bible, Revelation chapter 13, which we'll we'll be getting on to in, in a few moments, no doubt. So I'm absolutely delighted that you are with us today, Catherine. But in, in a sense, much of your life has been characterized by a, a God-given call to resist all of these things I've just been mentioning. So I'm wondering if you would talk us through how that call came to you and how you ended up doing what you are doing today. Absolutely. Well, I thank you so much. And of course, I've authored a new children's book on this topic titled, I Won't Take the Mark. So it really has been the focus of about 15 years of my life um, as a secular activist fighting against um, just big brother incursions and and government use of these technologies. And uh, from a medical standpoint, concerns about risks that implanted radiofrequency devices actually have from a medical perspective of causing cancer. But uh, really at the heart of all of it is an experience I had when I was a young child in the Midwest, and my grandmother actually uh, called me. We were putting away groceries from the grocery store, and she said, Kathy, and at that time I wasn't Dr. Catherine Albrecht, I was just Kathy, and she said, I have something I want to tell you. And so we sat down at the linoleum table in this farmhouse kitchen, and she told me that a day would come at some point, we don't know when, but that someday a, an evil ruler would take over and rule the entire planet, and he would require all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and imprisoned or enslaved, really everybody, all 100 
percent of the world's population to receive a mark on their right hand or their forehead. And of course, she was referring to that passage in the book of Revelation. And for listeners who want to find the passage, it's easy to find. Revelation is the last book of, of the New Testament. So it's the last book in your Bible. And if you turn to chapter 13, which kind of has a bad reputation as an unlucky number anyway, so you can remember that. And then the last three verses of chapter 13 refer to uh, this prophecy. And it was a prophecy shown to the Apostle John, one of the 12 apostles of Jesus Christ. He was a very old man. Some say he was in his 80s or, or beyond. He was in exile on a tiny island called Patmos off the coast of Greece, and he was shown a vision of what would happen as essentially all of the events of the Bible draw to a close before Christ returns to create a new heaven and a new earth, and we really get to the end of the whole story. So this prophecy, of course, it's lengthy. Revelation is a long book, but in this particular passage, it refers to the rise of the the uh, ruler of the end time. Um, he gets his power from the dragon. Some people call him the Antichrist. He's the, the, the evil ruler who takes over, and he requires the worship that people normally would be directing towards God to be directed towards him. So he's not only a political ruler um, and, and has tremendous power over the earth's people, but he requires that they also worship him from a religious standpoint. And so my grandmother, she didn't go into all those details, but she said there's, there's going to be a time when all people will be forced to receive this mark in their right hand or in their forehead, and without this mark, they will not be able to buy or sell. And the Bible in those three passages at the end of Revelation 13, verses 16 through 18, the last three verses there, says the, the number that, that in everybody's hand or forehead will be a mark, and in the original Greek that word is karagma, which means sort of an engraving or a puncturing, that will um, contain the number 666, which is the name and, and or the name of a man or of man. And it's unclear from the original Greek because they don't separate a man or versus mankind. So we don't know what kind of number this is, but there's a number in there, and that number is 666. And so my grandmother, when I was eight years old, made me promise um, never to take this mark. Now, I'm in my 40s. Uh, This was back in the 1970s. There was no satellites. There was no internet. There were no cell phones. There were no desktop computers. And there weren't even any barcodes at that point in time. I had never seen a credit card. A few people had them, but I'd never seen one. My parents paid for everything in cash or with a check. Uh, the price labels in the store were uh, either affixed paper stickers or they were that purple ink that they used to stamp on that people old enough will remember. So I struggled at the age of eight to try to understand how one could do two things. First of all, how could one possibly buy and sell with a number because I'd never seen it done. I've only seen people buy and sell with cash. Mm. So that was the first question. Are we going to move to a time when things are bought and sold with numbers. And of course now you fast forward 30 some years or 40 years and, and people buy and sell virtually everything with a number. It's Absolutely. what do you, which number do you want? My PayPal yeah, number, yeah, my yeah. Bitcoin number, my credit card number. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry, the, the, obviously the, there are many things that we could just jump into discussing about that. Before we actually leave this business about the prophecy in the book of Revelation chapter 13, I wanted to yes. ask you a question about that first before we move on. And that is that there's somewhat of a trend in biblical studies these days to say that that was talking just about the Roman Empire during the first century, and therefore perhaps we shouldn't be thinking of this as prophetic of the future at all. Now, I don't agree with that, and obviously you don't agree with that either. So I'm just wondering if you could spell out why you think this is actually talking about the future and not just about first century. 
Absolutely. So that position is known as preterism, which is the position that the prophecies of Revelation have already taken place. And it's it's one that's held by many um, members of the Catholic Church. I've certainly had many conversations about that. It's held by, by other people, biblical scholars. It's a relatively recent position. And let, let's talk about why I, I can pretty much categorically state that it's not true. When I first started working on these issues back in 1999, Julian, it was not possible to identify every person on the globe. In fact, um, the prophecy says all people, and it, and it, it doesn't just say all people, it, it goes into great detail. Rich and poor, I mean really all people. Great and small, I mean everybody. And then it even says free and bond or enslaved or imprisoned. Everybody, everybody. Now, at the time this was written 2,000 years ago, and even a, a thousand years after that, if you want to say it happened somewhere in that time span, it was not possible to identify all people. We, we really, as humankind, did not even have a conception of the, the extent of the globe, much less Google Maps and satellites that could identify every square foot. And I gave a talk called RFID on the Brink of the Mark, which you can find on YouTube, back in, I think, 2003. And I held up a copy of National Geographic from that year where they were saying, we think we're about to find the last humans on Earth, but we haven't done it yet. And they were talking about uncontacted tribes in the Amazon, in, in parts of Australia, in certain other places where they just hadn't, we hadn't cataloged everybody. We didn't know where everybody was. So the ability to identify all people on all the earth is a new one. And when I say new, it's probably only been around for about 10 years. So that's one piece. We have never before in all of human history, even if you want to say the Romans um, enslaved people and did things to them and made them buy and sell in certain ways, that was a very small subpopulation of the globe. It didn't include Africa. It didn't include North and South America. It didn't include, you know, so, so I think that right there, we've never, we've never done that. We've also never required that all people on the globe or even the people we'd identified receive a mark to buy and sell. And we've never implemented a system in the past of buying and selling with numbers. So all of this has really come about since the computer era. Most of it has only been here since about 2009, 2007, around the time the cell phone came into play. So this is a very new ability. We are living, Julian, in the, in the first time in human history where we have the technological ability to put all those things together, to identify everyone, to move to a numbered currency, and to physically put a mark on every single human being on the face of the earth. And that's never happened before. Now, just to finish that thought, some people will say, and I, I do believe this, that we see shadows of prophecy in, in the Bible, that we can look historically yes. at some of these prophecies and see where we had a shadow of it fulfilled. But when you look at the full fulfillment of it, it, it's so clear that it's happening around us right now that I think to say otherwise would be to maybe not pay attention to current events. Funnily enough, that's exactly what I was going to say then, where I was interjecting. I was going to say that there are recapitulations of prophecy, aren't there, in Scripture? So, indeed, this could have been partially fulfilled at the time of the Roman Empire, but there's no reason at all. And, in fact, there is reason, as you've just said, why this should receive a, a fuller fulfillment in the future. Absolutely. So, can I just ask, what do you understand by the mark on the forehead or on the hand. I mean, there are loads of interpretations, as, as you know. Is this a branding? Is this, a, is this talking about some coinage with, you know, a, a king pressed on the coin? Is this connoting the Jewish phylactery worn on the forehead and tied around the hand? I mean, how do those thoughts fit into how you interpret it? 
Well, you know, it's interesting, Jillian. When I was a child, I couldn't understand the buying and selling with the number part. Now you could ask any eight-year-old and, and they'll have a hundred answers for you. And we all understand it. So there's no mystery. How do you buy and sell with a number? If anything, it's hard for people to imagine there was ever a time when we didn't do that. So my, my understanding of biblical prophecy is that there are pieces and components of this that will become extraordinarily obvious as they unfold. But as we try to predict them in advance, we simply can't understand them. So we don't know what the next technology breakthrough is. We could couldn't have predicted the credit card even, and the buying and selling with numbers. I think probably even a hundred years ago that would have been inconceivable, and yet now everyone knows what that is. So I, I believe, first of all, the hand of the forehead. I, I think it will be the right hand. I think the reason it says forehead is um, I grew up around a lot of disabled people, many of whom don't have hands. Thalidomide babies, for example, born without hands, accident victims, and there is one thing that we all have. We all have a head. <laughs> There's a gentleman who does um, a comedy routine and inspiration things and he is just a torso with a head quite an entertaining and, and very brilliant man but he has no limbs and even someone in that state has a head. You have to have a head to live. It's really the only part of your body you're required to have. So to, to put the mark on the forehead would, would make sense in the event of not having a hand. And I think it's simply the Bible's way of saying, no, really, we mean everybody. And you're not going to be able to just chop off your hand and say, that doesn't apply to me. It will, it will be applied to all people. As far as what it will be, it's very clear that it is some kind of numbering system that goes into the hand or the forehead or onto the hand or the forehead. The word, as I point out karagma, meaning sort of an engraving, implies a depth or a puncturing, but it doesn't have to. It could conceivably be a painting on, but uh, when I've spoken to people who are fluent in Greek and, and have studied that, they say that they believe there's a puncturing element to it or something pierces or goes into the flesh and leaves a permanent mark. So it could be a tattooing, possibly. It could be, absolutely, because if tattooing is, is indeed a piercing, it could be mm. an implantable device of some type. It could be implantable cell phone. We, we just saw the introduction of the Apple Watch, and we're seeing Samsung watches out there and, and all sorts of other devices that, that enable you to connect with your phone. Um, it could be an implantable, smaller version of that. It could be something as simple as a, a, a microchip with a number in it. It could be a tattoo. People in the 70s thought it would be a barcode. I think that's probably unlikely, but, but certainly possible. So to answer your question, I guess it's a long answer, but I think we won't know, but when the time comes, everyone will know in the same way we know about how to pay with a number now. Okay, can we go back to your personal story? And you mentioned the date 1999, and I understand that something very dramatic happened to you at that time. Can you explain what happened and why that was so important? Yeah, actually it did. So probably to lead you up to 99, I, I need to finish with my grandmother who made me promise never to take this mark. And I said, you mean all people are going to have to have it? And she said, well, according to the Bible, it's everyone. And I said, you mean they won't be able to buy anything, even groceries? And that was because I'd been, we'd been putting away groceries. And she said, especially groceries, that's how they'll get people to sign up because if you don't comply, you'll starve. And so these thoughts, um, I, I promised her, I, I promised I would never take this mark of the beast. I promised her that I would pass on to my kids and grandkids so someday thousands of years in the future when these things happened our descendants would know not to do it and then fast forward a couple of decades and I was a graduate student at Harvard I was working on my dissertation on a totally unrelated topic in uh, human development and psychology and I noticed that as I, I'm from Southern California and I was traveling to Boston to go to school and so I had two wallets, each of which were jam-packed with cards, because if you recall in the 90s, everybody 
wanted to give you a card for your wallet. So I had a bus card and I had a Xerox card and I had the library card and I had all these store cards. And I began to feel like every place I went, they were asking, okay, now I want the two of spades. Now I want the king of diamonds. And I was just going through this list. And it dawned on me that every one of these cards represented a numbered account that was being used to make a database entry of my activities, whether I got on the bus or the subway, whether I bought groceries at the store. And it began to occur to me that we were beginning to associate purchases and financial transactions with numbers and with recording and with with these large databases that have since taken over our privacy. And so I, at that time, um, 1999, was really thinking about uh, everything from that to the mobile speed pass. You may recall mobile had a fob that hung off your keychain. It was a contactless uh, radio frequency fob that you could just wave at the cash register and make your payment invisibly. And so I did some research and I realized that there was a company that was literally implanting that technology into people's flesh in 1999. It was called Digital Angel back then. And I was thinking about these things in light of what my grandmother had said. And I, at that time in my life, had really sort of wandered away from the Bible. I was not, um, I hadn't grown up going to church other than what my grandmother told me. Didn't have a whole lot of um, really biblical knowledge about what she had told me in Revelation. Although I I had given my, my life to the Lord at the age of nine, so I, I think he was guiding me. And in 1999, I had what I can only describe as um, a profound spiritual experience, which was a visit by the Holy Spirit. And I was um, kind of blown across the room with light and love. Many people have described this over thousands of years having this experience, but it was overpowering. And I was plucked out of my normal life as a newly married uh, wife and, and a graduate student, and I was placed on this road to to really understand, to learn, to grasp everything my grandmother had told me and to make it my life's mission to alert the planet to what was coming. And in that sense, um, the Lord really worked in my life. I started a consumer group. I've done over 2,000 interviews. I've been on the BBC and the New York Times. I've written for Scientific American. I've testified before the European Union and the Federal Trade Commission. I've been everywhere and done everything and since earned my doctorate from Harvard, too. And really, the things that I saw in 1999 have all pretty much come to pass. That's the shocking part. The things I thought would be thousands of years have happened in in real time before my very eyes to where we're coming up to the people receiving implants in their hands to buy and Mm. sell at this point in time. Yeah. What was it that that company called Digital Angel? Is that the company that became Verichip? It is, yeah. I believe that the company is a stock scam, and I've spent many, many years researching them and writing about them. Um, Scott Silverman, who runs the company, was promoting implantable microchips, the same ones that are implanted into dogs and cats, as a way to help medical patients to be identified in an emergency room in the event that they didn't have ID or or were unconscious. And so he's been really promoting this, I think, more in the media than in real life because the company makes less than $2,500 a year from selling the microchips are had for many years. So what they do is they they get these breathless articles in the paper. People invest in the company viewing this as the wave of the future, which we all probably sense on some deep level. And then he's made, uh, I think he made $8 million one year, and it's literally just from the investment money that people pour into the company. Mm -hmm. So they've been known as uh, Digital Angel, Verichip, the Positive ID Corporation. They just rebranded themselves yet again. And Scott Silverman has made tens of millions of dollars from scaring people, I think, with the technology that's only been implanted in a couple hundred people total worldwide. Right, so it did actually get implanted in people. Is that, is that to diabetic patients and Alzheimer cases? 
Yeah, so this is probably a, a good time to tell the story of one of the, the big victories that we've scored over this um, this technology in 2007. Um, no. 2007, mm-hmm. I was actually quite quite afraid um, that we were seeing big inroads with this. And just to tell you a few, we had Blue Cross Blue Shield implanting the Verichip device into diabetic patients as a trial. We had John Halamka, the head of IT for Harvard University, writing uh, glowing articles in medical journals about how this would be so great to put in all the Harvard faculty and the students, and it needed to spread. We had um, the Alzheimer's Community Care Center, which is a daycare center for um, senile patients in, in Florida, actually doing an experiment where they were implanting 200 Alzheimer's patients who didn't even understand what was being done to them with these microchips. And perhaps most disturbingly, we had the highest public health official in the United States, a man named Tommy Thompson, who was head of the uh, Health and Human Services and head of the FDA, approved the Verichip for implantation in humans as a medical device on his watch in 2005. And then he retired. He stepped down from public service and took a position on the board of directors for the Verichip Corporation and was promoting it among all his government associates, despite the fact that he himself refused to receive a microchip implant, which I thought was interesting. (laughs) Okay. Yes, that is interesting. So at about this time, um, it really did seem like this was taking off. We had major backers from Harvard and Blue Cross and the government and it was really becoming frightening. And at about this time, two things happened. One, I just felt a prompting in my heart to fly to Florida and pray outside this facility. And so we headed up a march and a prayer vigil that was covered by all the, the local and national media outside of the Alzheimer's Center to simply pray that, that they put an end to this. And at about the same time, I was contacted by a dog owner who's dog had developed a fast-growing tumor around his implanted microchip. And she was a childless woman. She loved her dog like a child. She pursued this to the nth degree, and she began to uncover research, particularly out of Europe, that these microchip implants were causing cancer in people's pets. And not willing to let that go, she then pursued it further and found that there were a whole series of 10 years' worth of studies that had been published showing that these microchips, the very same ones they were putting in the Alzheimer's patients, were causing extraordinary havoc in laboratory settings where they were being placed into mice and rats. And what we found, because she shared this research with me, I went over to the Medical University of Harvard and found even more of it. This wasn't even digitized and online. I mean, I was down in the basement photocopying documents. I mean, it was crazy. And we found <laughs> Good old-fashioned that, approach, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So we found that when you inject these, and it's, it's, it's actually kind of interesting, it's a live transponder, which what, what, what this means, you think of it as an inert capsule of glass with a microchip inside of it. But what it really is, it's a device that is picking up an ample electromagnetic radiation from the environment. That's how it operates. So it doesn't have its own power source. It doesn't emit anything. But if it's around power that's operating on its frequency, it will pick it up and amplify it inside the flesh. And as we know, exposure to electromagnetic radiation is controversial to begin with. But when you put that deep inside the flesh where there's already an irritant because it's a foreign body inside of an, an animal or a person, then it, it it seems to give rise, I mean, we certainly know this from the researchers who wrote this specifically, that it was giving rise to cancer. It was actually causing cancer in the surrounding tissue. And between 1 and 10% of mice implanted with these who have, have nothing else done to them, they're just control mice that are being numbered so they can be used in experiments, 1 to 10% of them were having to be killed because of the size of the tumors around the microchips. And when you cut open the tumor, glistening inside like the pit of a peach, there's the microchip. Okay. 
Yeah, uh, people can see this, by the way, at chipmenot.com. Uh, the report is up there, the photos of the tumors, the photos of the mice, all the research, the links, it's all there, the evidence. Chipmenot.com is an anti-animal chipping website. Uh, we've received many reports from pet owners that we've posted as well, along with their stories and evidence, and that's mm-hmm. chipmenot.com. So at the same time that I flew to Florida and we had this uh, wonderful televised prayer vigil at the facility, I was also working on a investigative research piece with Associated Press reporter Todd Lewin, and we took six months to go over these documents to contact Sloan Kettering Cancer Institute to talk to human cancer doctors, and to he published the most definitive scathing attack on implantable microchips from a cancer perspective, and the victory is that Blue Cross Blue Shield removed all the chips, the Alzheimer's Center stopped chipping humans, John Halamka hasn't breathed a word about it since then. We saw the stock value of this corporation, the Veritrip company, go from about $11 a share down to $0.24 a share. They literally lost all their stock value. They were delisted from the stock exchange even. And so it really was, uh, since 2007, when they were at their height, there have since been no one that I'm aware of in the United States actively promoting microchipping of humans for any purpose whatsoever other than the tattoo artists and the hobbyists who are doing it kind of uh, rogue outside the system. And that's even what happened in, in Sweden. So we did stop it. Mm-hmm. But does it actually stand as FDA approved? Has that been changed? That's the interesting part. Both I and Todd Lewin of the Associated Press separately submitted Freedom of Information Act requests to the FDA asking them to reveal to us what evidence they had reviewed when they approved the the microchip. And illegally and in violation of U.S. law, they have failed to reply to either of us all these years later. It's been eight years and they've failed to reply. So it is my, I believe based on statements made by Scott Silverman and, and representatives of the FDA to the press, that they not only didn't review the articles, but they weren't aware of them. And that when they got caught as having not reviewed them, that they simply thought they could bury their head in the sand. And so we haven't heard anything about it. Uh, If I had all the time in the world, I'd probably sue them and we'd make a big deal about it. But it does stand currently as medically approved, although it's not being used for any medical purpose in the U.S. at this time. Mm -hmm. And what about the rest of the world? Obviously, this business is going on in Sweden. But uh, do you know what the status of it is generally around the world? Well, the the chipping people in Sweden are part of a club, and it's sort of a tattoo artist. He's covered with body modifications who's, who's doing this, and he's now um, had two publicized chipping events in Sweden. When I mention he's a tattoo artist, I think that's significant because many years ago it was it was Blue Cross Blue Shield. It was medical doctors. Nowadays, it's, it's really these sort of hobbyists working outside of the medical system completely. Um, as far as the prevalence of this, they claim that up to 1,000 people worldwide have have accepted these microchip implants in their hands for one reason or another. But again, I know of absolutely no one who is sort of a legitimate medical government corporate authority who's, who's advocating this. Right. What I think is interesting, you opened by talking about their comment that they're concerned that government or corporations will be requiring this at some point in the future. Sure. And I think it's ironic that their response to that, they say, well, they're going to require this, so we're going to be the first so we can tell you what all the problems are. And yeah. I'm thinking, well, <laughs> why would you want to step right into the thing you most fear and experience the problems you're most concerned about, whether it's cancer, whether it's Big Brother tracking, whatever it might be, why would you want 
to express your opposition by participating. So I'm a little puzzled by that, but I still think it's very interesting what, what they're doing. Yes, I, I did find that very odd as well. I do agree. Now, if we, we look at this Revelation prophecy, and uh, you know, one of its implications, as we've already said, is that there's going to be a system of paying for goods and services that's going to somehow be attached physically to human beings. And you know, it looks like microchipping would be a contender for this, were it not for all these health concerns that we've just been talking about. So perhaps other forms of biometric identification would be more likely to come in the future, such as, as we've already mentioned, tattooing or something like iris scanning. Do you think those are more likely to be future possibilities? Well, I think we're, we're already seeing examples of why the hand is such a useful way to identify people. And the places we're seeing this are Disney World, which has implemented a wristband, and Coachella, which is the big sort of Woodstock of this current decade. Uh, it's a, a music festival held in the desert of California. And in both of these events, what they do is they issue an RFID chip. It's the same microchip that you could implant in your hand, but instead it's in a wristband around your wrist. And then there are videos online where you can see at at Coachella, for example, they have um, big, uh, what would you call them? They're kind of like anti-theft gates, one on the left and one on the right. And then they have a circle with a right hand around it, a picture. And as you walk through, and and they can move huge crowds this way, you simply bang your right hand against this picture and it goes beep, beep, beep. And one by one, thousands of people pour into this festival in minutes instead of what used to take hours. So there's a reason, I think, why it's certainly much easier to simply, they don't even break stride. They literally just walk through and as they're walking, they beat their hand and they don't even stop. To do an iris scan requires stopping. You've got to find the thing. You've got to look into it. It's got to read you. It's got to approve you. It's it's a much quicker, even than a fingerprint. A fingerprint, you've got to press and then wait for the read. This thing transmits from about six inches away. So before your hand even hits it, it's already reading you. So I think from a, a convenience and a simplicity standpoint, putting a chip into a wristband or, um, better yet, putting it into the right hand. Coachella's had a real problem with people trying to remove their wristbands and share them with other people. If you could implant that thing in the hand, there would be no way to share it with someone else and just, boom, it'd be the same process. So we're seeing it happen. Um, Disneyland has something similar. I think it's extremely creepy. They've got metal orbs. They're metal balls with uh, a green neon outline of Mickey's head, and you press your, your wristband or your hand up to that thing in order to go to the front of the line or pay for your your hot dogs or whatever you're doing. So we're seeing this right-hand concept of I'm just going to press my hand to make a payment. I'm just going to press my hand to buy tickets or get in. I think the hand is going to be the wave of the future because it's the easiest part of your body to move away from you. You you can stick it out. It's got a a couple foot range outside your body and and you can do it while you're moving. Mm, Yeah. And this whole business about contactless payment is how this whole thing is being sold to everybody, isn't it? I mean, I sometimes feel it when I'm shopping, you know, and I'm fiddling around with coins and notes and the like, and there's somebody else just goes through and waves their card at the machine, and, and you sort of feel to yourself, well, damn, I'm not being cool. I've, you know, there's a pressure there, of course, but I don't really want to go in that direction. But the whole thing seems to be sold in convenience and coolness, and there is a, a real social pressure being engineered there. Yeah, I I think absolutely. And what we've seen from a social perspective, because when I was doing my dissertation research in 2005, I interviewed people about frequent shopper cards at the grocery store. I interviewed them about microchip implants very neutrally, very much saying it's a medical device. Would you take it? And I had about 15% of people say they would. And the other ones were adamantly opposed. I mean, just like over my shotgun kind of answers. Like they were, whoa, hang on, not me. I'm not trying to do it. But um, there's been recent research with 
within just the last couple of years that have shown that that number of opposition has has gone way down. And now, uh, according to some studies in some parts of the world, it's as high as 50% of people who say that if they could put their smartphone or their cell phone into an Im- a tiny implant in their hand, use it to buy and sell, that they would do it. Really? So yeah. we're, we're now looking at really decreasing levels of opposition. And what I find the most fascinating, Julian, about this is that I grew up, as I said, in the 1970s, where I was exposed to the Mark of the Beast. It was in music on the radio. Right. There were television programs, movies. Everybody knew about it. They talked about it on Sunday in church. Mm. And we've now moved in, in just a few short decades to a point where even Christians who attend church every Sunday, you'll ask them about the Mark of the Beast, Christian teens, people in their 20s, and they'll say, what is that? Yes. The what of the huh? So somehow we, we've lost this 2,000-year-old expectation we were told to watch for. We've lost it, and, and we're not watching for it. Yeah, and in fact, it seems in popular culture, it seems to be something to be laughed at, really. Um, yes. I mean, I'm just thinking a lot of, in a lot of people's minds, they probably have that scene from, I think it was from The Omen, is it, where the 666 actually appears in the hairline. I think I've got the right film there, haven't I? Yeah. But of course, that's the wrong context for understanding yes. that at all. And I often see, you know, 666 plastered all over the place with various comments, and it seems to have nothing to do with the context that we've been talking about in the book of Revelations. There's a lot of misunderstanding out there about it. I, I think so. And this is the reason, because I've often thought about my grandmother, by the way, who I love dearly, passed away about a year after she warned me about the Mark of the Beast. And so if she hadn't told me, there's a pretty good chance that I wouldn't have ever, you know, I might have seen the movies, I might have seen the TV things in the 70s, but I don't think I ever would have really understood it in light of what's happening today, where we're actually putting things in the hand with numbers in them to buy and sell. Um, my goal in writing my children's book, I Won't Take the Mark, which I've spent 15 years on, literally, that was part of the, the, the task that I was given by the Holy Spirit was to write this book for children, was to provide a way for today's parents and grandparents, Sunday school teachers, ministers, preachers, priests, whoever, to pass this information along to the next generation, because it's difficult. It's, it's hard to sit down with your kids, as my grandma did, and say, there's going to come a time when you're going to need a mark in your hand to buy and sell, and you've got to say no. That's a difficult conversation, and I think... The book of Revelation itself confuses a lot of adults. Um, I've spent a lot of time with it, and I don't find it confusing, but I can see how you would and could. And I think a lot of parents are afraid that they don't even have the theology downright. So what I've written, it's a 41-page children's book. It's beautifully illustrated. We've gotten tremendous reviews on, on the beauty of this book. And what it does is it has, on each page, there's King James Scripture. So it's biblically based. There's not a word in here that doesn't come straight out of the Bible. It's got the Scripture for... A Bible study for an adult or a teen, but then on the other side, it's got the children's version of that scripture, so written in very simple, probably a a four-year-old could understand it, level of language, and then there's a photograph to illustrate each of the topics, and it really talks people through what my grandmother talked me through, and of course, the reason you discuss this is because you won't always be there to protect your kids and grandkids, and so you want them on their own to understand that this is something they should not participate in, and for that reason, at the end of the book, there's a certificate. It's 8 by 10 um, inches. It's suitable for framing. And it says, I promise to um, never worship anyone but God, and I promise never to take the mark of the beast. And there's a place there for the child's signature, for your signature as the witness, and then for the date. And my goal really was to have the book as a teaching tool to facilitate this 
perhaps most important conversation you'll ever have with your child, and then to have the certificate that can go on the wall of their bedroom where they're going to see it a thousand times and remember that so that someday in the future, if it happens in their lifetime, somebody says, you need this number to buy and sell, and oh, by the way, bow down and worship this world leader, they'll say, wait a minute, I think I remember that bit on my wall my whole growing up, I'm, I'm going to say no to it. So it's really sort of an inoculation for this generation mm. that's growing up surrounded by these technologies and is not being told to question them. Because on the face of it, from what you've just described there, that sounds really very frightening, actually. So you have this book, and it says, I won't take the mark, and it's beautifully illustrated and all the rest of it. Because I've only seen what's been available on your website, so I haven't read the whole of the book yet. But I'm just wondering how you cope with that, getting across this quite disturbing message, and yet also making it reader-friendly for children. You know, it's interesting because we traveled in November to an island in the Caribbean called Anguilla, and we gave a copy of the book to every child on the island, um, close to 4,000 children, along with Bibles, and not one child was frightened by the book. This is what I found so extraordinary, is that if you think about it, we expose children to all sorts of frightening things. The sort of typical story of a children's story is, um, oh, I don't know, Snow White, and you've got this beautiful girl, and she's very happy, and then she's given a poison apple by a member her, of her own family to kill her, and then, then it has a happy ending at the end. Um, our children's stories, you know, Hansel and Gretel, we're going to fatten you up and stick you in an oven, and you're in a cage, but don't worry, it, it works out in the end. Children are accustomed to stories that have a a threat in the middle and then a good ending. And I wonder, I can't help but wonder if maybe the reason why that model of story doesn't resonate with us is because it doesn't reflect the ultimate story, which is this story. You know, you've got an enemy, he's manifesting himself on earth and, and, and wants to perform the ultimate harm to you, and then you've got a hero. And in the book, um, Christ rides up, it's in the book of Revelation, it's in my book as well, but it's there because it's in Revelation. Christ comes and defeats the enemy and locks him up and throws him in a pit with a key where he can't hurt people anymore and then brings the tremendous and beautiful rewards of the marriage supper of the lamb, the beautiful party. Um, we've got a stairway up into up into heaven with, with rainbows. We show the new heaven and the new earth descending. And the book is really one about the glories and the beauty that come after this. So I wouldn't say I find the book scary at all. I found some parents who are themselves not believers who maybe think about some of these things that may be coming and become frightened because maybe they're not in a position to have made up their minds about what they're going to do. Some parents have found it frightening, but I've yet to see a single child out of thousands who've read this book in my presence be afraid of it. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's very reassuring, certainly. Um, can I ask you about the other side of this equation? Because obviously we've been talking about what might be technologically placed into human beings. But of course, the other side of this is the technological infrastructure that's there to make sense of these implants or whatever they might be in human beings. And of course, here I'm thinking of things like the the Internet of Things and the smart grid and, and that kind of thing. Um, could you describe concerns that you have about the Internet of Things and how that might be part of this whole setup that we need to be concerned about? Absolutely. I think I think what's being built right now, this, this sort of frenzy of surveillance that we're all involved in building, even literally in our own lives, by placing drop cam cameras in our homes and having tracking devices and GPS on our, on our phones and purchasing Samsung TVs that can listen to our conversations and share them with third parties. I think really all of this frenzied um, placement of surveillance technology into the world is actually a part of the, the steps leading to the mark of the beast. 
Because if you want to implement a global system in which all people must comply with a particular mandate, then you have to have the ability to make sure that they're complying. You have to have the ability to watch what they say to one another, to see what they do in their homes, to see what they do in their workplace, where they go. You have to have the enforcement mechanism of being able to actually monitor for compliance. And so it, one of the ways I think of this is God knows every time a sparrow falls from the sky, he numbers the hairs on your head. God is omniscient, he's omnipresent, he's omnipotent. It's among his characteristics to know all things. Satan, on the other hand, I think is relying upon us to build the infrastructure to enable him to do that. And I was just talking to someone who said that they're putting pinhole cameras, this is an academic who researches these things called urban data collection, that literally pinhole cameras are being placed into sidewalks and walls and light fixtures to watch people. And if you think about that omniscience being built literally into every environment, into every physical object through the Internet of Things, so that when you take a cup of coffee off the shelf in your cupboard and you lift up the coffee maker and pour a cup in, that 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 will be reported somewhere, that that will be recorded. The cup will have an RFID tag, the coffee pot will, the appliances will be communicating with the smart grid, and your every move, every moment of your entire day will be monitored and will be judged. Mm -hmm. And whether you believe believe in the biblical prophecy aspect or not, I think we've seen enough from Ed Snowden, we've seen enough from from tyrannical governments Mm -hmm. around the world and history to say, maybe that's not such a good idea to put power over your life in in your most private areas. I mean, the home has always been sacrosanct. To give that kind of power to someone else to surveil, ultimately control you, is, is a very bad idea. And then you add the biblical component to it, and you just can't help but feel sort of the hot breath of this thing that's being built in order to ultimately demand worship from the world's people. And of course, this is really extrapolating from what already exists, isn't it? Because we do actually have the smart grid. We do have smart meters going into people's houses. I mean, we've received all sorts of adverts for it here, trying to entice us to go along this route. And of course, we also have um, shopkeepers, retailers actually using RFID in goods. So all of this is ready to take root in our lives, isn't it? It is. It's quite extraordinary. And a couple of things I could say about this. This was really driven by the whole computer revolution. And as I was pointing out, and younger people may not realize, this, none of this existed when I was a kid, and I'm not that old. <laughs> so the fact that this has happened so quickly and, and really been embraced so fully by the majority of the world's people is an accelerating trend. I think it's moving quickly. And if you look at what the people who are working with Google, for example, we talked about StartPage, which is the private search engine that I have to create that people should be using instead of Google, because Google's mm. up to no good. And And their director of engineering is a guy named Ray Kurzweil, who is the father of the singularity, this notion that at some point we will dump our humanity, we'll dump these packages of meat we call bodies, and we will achieve eternal life by uploading ourselves into the computer system or by merging with our technology. And as I think about this, it's hard not to get the cold chills because what he's really talking about is removing human consciousness, which we would call the soul, from the body, literally removing the soul from the body and giving it over to the computer network for all eternity. Mm. And, I mean, we, we certainly know that Satan is the ultimate counterfeit. He, he wants to emulate the powers of God mm-hmm. because he wants to, and he perverts them. I mean, he takes the loving relationship between a husband and a wife and perverts it into pornography, or he takes the wonderful um, way that seeds grow into plants and turns it into genetic modified monstrosities. I mean, that, this is what he does. So he takes the powers of God and he appropriates them to, the, to himself. And when he does that, they become perverse. There, there's always something broken yes. in them. And so when we think about the 
eternal life that we're offered through Jesus Christ and faith in Him, which is a beautiful thing. And then you think about the kind of eternal life living in a mainframe conceived of by these people, the, pe- the very people who spy on you, <laughs> the very people who have used um, Gmail to, to read your every yeah. email and, and are in the business of deceiving you with regard to that. Are those the people you want having eternal charge of you for all eternity? And, and I think the answer is no. I think that is the answer, yes. And so that's even if it works. I mean, it's highly dubious that this would even work at all. I mean, looking at it from a theistic perspective, you know, the idea that you can actually upload the real person to a mainframe, I think is pretty counterintuitive, isn't it? I mean, I don't believe that I'm just a body. I don't even believe that I'm just packets of information. As, as you said yourself, you know, we, we have a soul. How on earth could that be uploaded? It just doesn't seem to make any sense to me. You know, it's, it's, it's made me wonder, and of course, when you work on this for many years and you're working with technology too, you, you conjecture a lot. And I've, I've asked myself if the taking of the mark, the, the actual taking of the mark of the beast is, is an unforgivable thing in the Bible. We, we don't see people coming back from it. It says that those who take the mark will be, will be punished. I mean, it's, it's pretty clear. So there's a sense of finality about this act of taking this thing in your hand and worshiping the beast. And by the way, I want to make it very clear. I don't believe any of the thousand people who've been microchip implanted have taken the mark of the beast because the Bible makes it very plain that they must also be participating in worship of something. And uh, there's no component of that yet. Absolutely. But when that happens, yes. Yes, yes. could it not be possible that the very act of taking this this thing, of doing whatever it is that you do when you worship, could not involve a transmission or an uploading or a downloading or a deletion of the body or a transmission of who you are into something else? And I've actually asked myself if the reason why it seems to be so unforgivable is because you you make a decision to no longer be human on some level, that you actually remove something fundamental and and essential from your actual body. And we're not there yet. Um, Mm -hmm. It it seems we may never be there. But if you read the words of Ray Kurzweil, I mean, he's saying 2045. I'm, I'm not big on dates, but he believes that there will actually be a point at which we can transfer something of the essence of who we are into a machine and at that point all may well be lost i mean that's that's really what the bible's been talking well, about all this time sort yeah. of a, a loss but even if it's not successful on a technological level at least you've given your allegiance to this and, and, and this system this big system has some of the or pretends to have some of the qualities of god by offering you this illusion of eternal life so you're giving your allegiance to this system so perhaps that's sufficient to fulfill the prophecy in itself I think so, and and you know it's it's interesting. Um, what the, there there are some punishments in the Bible, but one of them is the development of a noisome and grievous sore. And the word noisome means pestilential or stinky. It's actually one of the punishments poured out by the angels in the end time that all of the earth's people who've taken the mark will receive a sore. And as I was writing the research on chipmenot.com, and as I was looking at the pictures from these, these medical journal articles of these cancers, I couldn't help but say, well, that's certainly a noisome and grievous sore. My gosh, oh. these big red festering things that would form around the microchip. So even if it takes some other form, some other kind of implant or some other kind of mark, there's a physical consequence to doing that. And then, of course, there's a spiritual consequence to doing that, too, which is which is the wrath of God. And, you know, he's a just God. And if we sin before him by doing something so absolutely irretrievably evil as taking the mark of the beast, 
then it makes sense that, that there would be justice for doing something so terrible. So I, I think all of these pieces make it really plain, and, and your own heart makes it plain. This is, this is something interesting. I've worked a lot with Dr. Katina Michael, who's probably the world's expert out of Australia on implant technologies. She's interviewed the very people developing and selling these technologies. She has interviewed the man who sold the microchips to the people in Sweden and, and is in charge of the company. It's called Dangerous Things. His name's Amal Grofstra. She knows him personally. She's, she's invited him to conferences. I spoke at a conference with him. I've met him. And what is so interesting is when she's interviewed the people who are promoting and building these technologies, they will all say this stuff is evil. They'll all say it. Really? They'll all say this isn't going to end well. Yeah. If you scratch the surface and get into their hearts, it's just like these people in Sweden saying, we know this is a bad thing and that's why we want to do it. You'll find that they'll admit, they'll be the first to admit this isn't going to end well. This will be abused. This will be a very bad thing. Mm. And yet we're doing mm. it anyway. But do they have a sense of inevitability about it, do they? So they feel they should be on, on the bandwagon. Yes, they do. Mm. They do. And I think so does all humankind. Mm. We all, Everyone listening right now, they may think it's inevitable. They may think it's the way of the future. They may think of the cool things they can do with it. But there's not a person who doesn't feel on some level that, A, this will happen. And B, it won't be good. Mm. And I, I've seen this repeated over and over that we all sense it and we all have a kind of a feeling. Like I, sometimes I think we identify with the abuser, you know, like the people who are kidnapped to identify with their kidnappers. I think on some level we think if mm. I just go along with it, if I just embrace it, if I get excited about it, if I think of the upsides, maybe it won't hurt me as much. But we all sense that there's something coming that's going to harm us and perhaps even deeply, yes. irretrievably on a soul level. And this is how Scott Silverman's gotten so rich. He scares people because they know it's inevitable. And then, and then they invest. And even the oh, investors would say, this is evil and I hope it never comes, but I'm going to get rich because it is going to wow. come. Wow. And I guess part of what's informing us there must be the Nazi era, because we can you know, often say to ourselves, well, what would have happened if Hitler had had access to this kind of yes. thing? And we only need to just say, well, you know, that could be recapitulated in some way in the future, and we can all see the potential for evil there immediately, can't we? Absolutely. And in fact, the people who managed to escape Germany and tell their extraordinary stories of heroism and, and, and getting away in courage would not have been able to escape in a world like this, where your Samsung TV was watching no. you and knew you were lighting the menorah on Friday night, they would have easily been able to find people, find people years before they did. So it's, um, I, I think we all know that human power cannot be trusted. I think in the same way we talked about things sort of pre-shadowing other things, I think Hitler might have been a pre-shadow of, of what the ultimate form of darkness that takes over politically will look like. And, and we won't have seen anything like that. So, yeah, it's definitely coming. Um, as far as the book goes, I'd like to give the website if people would like to look at some of the pictures and, and see. Please do, yes. Yeah. It's virtuepress.com. Virtue Press is the name of our publishing house that put the book out. I have a daily radio program at katherinealbrecht.com. That's my name. And you can also find I Won't Take the Mark, the book, on Amazon, where it's gotten really glowing reviews. We really spared no expense. We made this to be the kind of heirloom book that your children can give to their children that won't just be read and thrown away, but to really be a, a quality and, and beautiful thing. And at, at virtuepress.com, we have uh, the frames that have been carefully selected to go with the 8x10 illustrated certificate so that you can make it as a gift. We've got beautiful gift wrap for boys and girls. You can send it as a one-time thing and um, put, have them put it up on their wall and they'll be inoculated against this and know to look for it as the technology advances. Good. And you also recommend people to use Xquick or start pages. I do as well. But I suppose one thing that I would want to ask is what's the difference between those two services? 
Yeah, let me let me explain. So, 2009, when I first discovered that the Google search engine was not a search engine, but a market research tool, designed not to give us the answers to our questions, but designed to capture the questions for market research purposes, I went, wait a minute, this is terrible. I can't keep making them my homepage and going there for every question because, you know, if I were to call up one of your listeners and say, are you facing bankruptcy? Ever look for a marriage counselor? How about how about a divorce attorney? How about drug addiction? You'd, you'd hang up on me. Yeah. We would never volunteer that information to market researchers, but we volunteer it to market researchers every time we type in a question on Google. And you think you're alone, the, the shades are drawn, the doors are shut, you think nobody's watching, but Google's sole purpose for existing and the reason they make billions of dollars and have so much money to be working on all this creepy stuff is because we are giving them market research data that they could not obtain otherwise. And that's why when I realized that in, in 19, uh, 2009, I said, wait a minute, <laughs> I can't keep using them. So I found a tiny search engine over in Europe called Ixquick, I-X-Q-U-I-C-K.com, that was serving private search results. And I worked with them to help create StartPage. A couple years later, in 2011, we came out with StartPage, which actually searches real Google results. So you get the actual Google results without the Google surveillance. So Ixquick, I think it's a wonderful search engine. It searches a bunch of, of uh, smaller search engines in real time. So you go there, there's a window just like on Google. You make it your homepage. You can add it to your browser by clicking Add to Firefox or add to Safari. And what it does is if you type in a word like Mark of the Beast, it will submit your question to Google for you. So we submit it to Google. Google never sees you. They only see us. We do about 5.5 million searches a day. So they don't know who's doing the searching. And we get the results privately. We give them to you privately. And then we delete your IP address and all records of your visit. So we don't know who's been on our website. We don't know what they've been looking for. And you get actual Google search results. So it's, it's really nice. That's startpage.com. It's an easy, easy way to get yourself out of the surveillance spotlight. And then the other thing, in 2004 that few people realize is the way Gmail got started. Gmail has been with us a little over 10 years, and they've gotten away with the biggest scam ever perpetuated on, on the human race, in my opinion. What they've done is in 2004, they had all this data, market research data coming in from Google, but what they really wanted to do was read people's email, and they didn't have a way to do that legally. They couldn't just get on your computer and hack you and read your email. So what they came up with, because they were a big and rich enough company, was a way to offer you an irresistibly beautiful email account as a way to read all of your email. And so they thought to themselves, well, if we can't get into the other email, we can create our own and read it all. And so in 2004, they implemented the Gmail program for the first time with a privacy policy that had never before been seen. Up until 2004, all email was like the U.S. Postal Service or the British Post where they promised to deliver it without reading it. In 2004, when Google came out with Gmail, they said, we're going to read everything you send and receive. We're going to scan it all. We're going to get all the keywords. We're going to know everything you say. We're going to know who you write to, what time you write to them. We're going to keep it all. And so myself, um, Privacy International, the ACLU, Epic, EFF, all the privacy groups, we got together and we wrote a joint letter to Google in 2004 and we said, don't do it. Because if you do it, not only are you going to completely change our concept of email privacy, but you're going to cause all the other companies to follow you. And here we are 10, 11 years later, and they disregarded our letter. 
They've read billions and billions of email. They know everything you think about, everything you talk about, everything, all your love letters, your private letters, your angry letters. They read it all. And as a result, they have the biggest dossier of personal information on individuals across the globe than any government or any other company historically ever. That's why the NSA, when it wants to know what you're up to, goes to Google. It doesn't even bother doing its own data collection. It simply taps the back end of Google. Although officially they don't do that. Um, yeah, no, well, they do. <laughs> Whether they tell you or not. Yes. So in, in, okay, I spent three years helping this small company uh, to develop a private email product called Startmail. And we've got Startpage, we've got Xquick, and now we've got Startmail at startmail.com. And you can watch a video overview and see why we, why we did it. But I wanted to take PGP encryption, which Ed Snowden recommends, and make it so that regular people could use it. And regular people could never figure it out. In fact, even uh, Glenn Greenwald, the reporter who broke the story, had a hard time learning how to use it to work with um, Ed Snowden. <laughs> so we, we got it down to literally one click. If you get a Startmail account, it's about five bucks a month. You get three accounts for that price, so one for you and two of your friends. You can encrypt your email so that if it is intercepted by one of these big data collection programs or even your ISP or anyone, they won't be able to read it because it's encrypted. And just to put the encryption in perspective, Julian, if I were to write you an encrypted email through Startmail and then put it through a confetti shredder and then take that confetti and combine it and mix it up with enough confetti to fill the Grand Canyon 10 times, that's how encrypted one single email is. It would take 45 years to decrypt it. It's really powerful and really hard to use. Uh, but we built all the back end, so all you have to do if you have a Startmail account is you just check the button that says encrypt this email and we do all the rest and it automatically arrives encrypted. And on the other end, if the person you're writing to has a Startmail account, they instantly see it. And if they have PGP encryption, they can instantly see it. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's awesome. I'm so excited about it. It just came out. We just launched our German version yesterday. So it's hot off the presses. It's at Startmail.com. It's $5 a month or $60 a year, and you get three accounts. So I have to put in a plug for it because I worked really hard to build it. Absolutely, yeah. And of course, you're charging for it, because presumably you are not using people's information for marketing purposes. That's right. And, and there's the thing. What we figured out is, um, and as I said, the other companies did follow suit. So Hotmail's doing this, Yahoo's doing it, all the big right. companies now right. are, are involved in reading your email. So now there's no way to get free private email. And when we look at how much it's costing them a month to run it, it's about five bucks a month. That's how much your data is worth to them. And I figure for the price of a, a cup of Starbucks, it's probably worth it to us to say, I'd rather keep that to myself. Thank you. And and so we mm -hmm. we are hoping that, that people are willing to put their money where their mouth is and really protect their privacy. And what about people who actually use different email accounts, but email people who are using Google? Do they end up getting some kind of profile through Google anyway? Yeah, you know, there's two lawsuits here in the U.S. right now over that um, for people who aren't on Startmail and aren't using encryption, but they're using some other kind of email and they're emailing Gmail accounts. People need to know this. If you write to somebody at a Gmail account and it's not encrypted, Google will actually create a dossier on you of all the things you write to their users. And wow. that's so annoying because even if you're like me and you've decided to never touch this program and never participate or agree to their terms of service, you get a dossier that reads your personal information. And there's lawsuits. They're being sued for that. Um, with Startmail, we've got this cool feature that I love, which is that if you're writing to somebody with an account you know is insecure, like Gmail, we have a way that you can send a message that actually sits on our server that doesn't even go through Gmail. It just gives you a link through Gmail, and then you have to enter a password, which you kind of work out in advance like you and I would be 
I don't know, secret stuff. And then every time you write secret stuff, it just goes to start mail and lets you read the email that I sent you. And then it lets you reply there too. So we could have a whole six month correspondence without you even having a start mail account with you being, for example, on Gmail. So it's, we kind of thought of everything or we tried to think of everything to make it so even if your friends aren't on board, even if they're like privacy, privacy, who cares? You can still keep your information out of the system mm-hmm. they're in. So it's, it's, it's really cool. It's startmail.com. There's a video up there that covers a lot of this. That's probably the easiest way to, to get more information. Okay, well, the last thing that I wanted to ask you really was uh, what advice, you, general advice you would give us. Obviously, this control grid is being constructed around us. So how can we n- not participate in it? I mean, obviously, you know, we can be aware of the propaganda and the marketing that's going on, and we can try to resist moving in a contactless direction with our own finances and our own way of dealing with our lives. But, you know, beyond these personal decisions, uh, what, what can we do as people who are, you know, who influence others around us? What, what can we do to help all of us resist these moves? I'm so glad you asked that. I think there's answers on so many different fronts. I think sometimes when you focus on all the darkness that's encroaching, you can get very discouraged. I remember one time someone called into a radio program I was on and said, you need a suicide hotline. You're depressing us so much. And I went, ah, (laughs) but I got to make solutions. So this is when I started looking for things like XQuick and Start Page and Start Mail was saying, I can't just talk depressing. I've got to give people things they Mm. can do. Um, As a Christian, I I find tremendous solace in knowing that these things were preordained to thousand years ago that's that even back then that this was known to be coming and the bible likens it to to birth pains and if any women out there have ever given birth you'll you'll know that it it gets dark before it gets light you go through this kind of oh my gosh what is this and then the next thing you know you, you have the most beautiful gift in the world and you're looking into the eyes of your baby and so the bible makes it very clear that this time will be tumultuous it's going to be birth pains and then we will be looking into the eyes of our lord so i take solace in knowing that this this is isn't just happening randomly. It, it's clear the world's going to hell in a handbasket, but it's, if it were doing that any random way, I would be scared. But because it's doing it precisely the way that was predicted, I, I actually find that reassuring because I know what happens next and, and this has a happy ending. On a more practical level of just what do you do on a day-to-day basis, uh, one of the things I tell people, cash, use it or lose it. Um, put away your credit cards. They're probably bad for you long-term because they get you into debt and make you not really think it's real money. Uh, So I go to the ATM machine or to the bank and I take out cash and when it's gone, I don't spend it again until the next time I think I can do that, which is how we used to live paycheck to paycheck and not in debt. So cash, use it or lose it, the more people demand to make cash payments, the more likely we are to hang on to cash, which is the only anonymous, reliable form of payment that's not numbered. Think twice about your addictions to technology. We are all addicted to smartphones and video games and computer and Facebook and you name it. And I think we need to become more conscious about that. Those parents with children under five, don't give them an iPad. Keep them off your phone. I know it's tempting. It's an easy way to keep them quiet, but allow them to experience the real world for the first five years of their life. Experts and and child development specialists are all saying that. Um, I think it's being not enslaved, I guess, is how I would put it if I had to find the bottom line. If if you're feeling enslaved to Facebook, if you're taking your smartphone into the bathroom and maybe trying to take it in the shower, uh, you, you know you have a problem. And I think we all need to step back from the machine and realize it is designed to addict. It's designed to enslave. It is perpetuating and furthering us down this road of total surveillance and, and the mark of the beast. And we all need to do a little more unplugging. And when people say you unplug, 
dialogue. It's it's amazing. You will spark conversations with other people. They might think you're weird, but you'll get them thinking. And I've I've been making a point of using less sure. technology, and uh, it feels great. Right, it feels yeah. really good. Oh, well, that's good advice. I mean, certainly for me, because I'm, people think I'm weird anyway, so it wouldn't matter if I unplugged more. Yeah. <laughs> they, they would just be confirmed in their right. suspicions anyway. <laughs> uh, well, uh, well, Catherine, it has been a, a delight to have you on the program. As I said at the top of the show, I've I've heard you several times before on other shows and been very intrigued and uh, of course informed by what you've had to say there and uh, so it's been really great now that you've been able to join us today to share your expertise and and indeed your love for god with us here at the mind renewed so thank you ever so much for coming on the program i've, I've enjoyed it immensely thank you so much julian and again i'm at katherinealbert.com if people want to write or email or catch my archives or my live radio show and the book is at virtue press or on amazon it's i won't take the mark and i'm, I'm sure we'll be talking in the future and, and i want to just say god bless you and all your listeners God bless you. Thank you ever so much for coming on. Thank you. Bye-bye. Well, thanks for listening to that interview with Dr. Catherine Albrecht. Certainly was great to have her on the programme. Just one note before we close. You will remember that we have this debate coming up in a few weeks' time between Christian evangelist Bobby Gilpin and Mormon apologist Michael Flournoy. Up to now... As you know, I haven't been able to say precisely what the motion for debate is going to be because we hadn't quite decided on the precise wording, but we have now. So the motion will be, the Mormon Church teaches a different gospel to the Bible. And uh, of course, Bobby will be arguing in favour of that motion and Michael will be disputing it. And as I said last time, if anyone has any relevant questions to put to either Michael or Bobby on Uh, Mormonism, Christianity, the Bible, anything along those lines, then please do send those questions in via the contact form or the voicemail service at TMR, and I'll try to use anything that I think is suitable. There have been a few questions come in so far, but it would be great to have a few more if that's possible. Also, a little note for those of you who may have heard my interview with Dr. Bennett recently. I still actually have a couple of his books left if anyone's interested, so please do let me know if you're interested in having a free copy of his book. So that's it for now. Hopefully we'll be speaking with Dr. Paul Craig Roberts next week on the subject of the tensions between Washington and Moscow. Um, So it just remains for me to say, may God bless each one of you, and I look forward to speaking to you next week.